0: good news, we have the six-month safety and efficacy data for the Pfizer vaccine. That study is out. Great news. Very efficacious, except at preventing death. Come on, let's go take a look. The following is the audio version of a video released at PeakProsperity.com. Visit PeakProsperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here, and something we've all been waiting for, which is the data that came in from the six-month study trial on the vaccine for Pfizer. Now, we've been looking at the original uh, study data that came out when they ran the trials, but now we have six-month data. So we're looking at things like efficacy, how good is it at blocking infection, does it prevent death, things like that. Let's turn now to the data because this is actually that's a mixed bag actually so let's go in here and begin to look at this uh the mixed bag is it well it works according to this study except at um preventing death so let's go right into that data first a lot of authors on here the corresponding author is a pfizer employee that's uh judith absalon down there and you've got all over the world this study was conducted so these are trial centers well in the u.s uh where else brazil um turkey argentina all over the place. So at any rate, uh, this is uh, the study. There's the link down there. We always present the link for you, and uh, you can follow this on for yourself. So there's two links we're going to have here for you. One is this, which is the study itself, and then it has supplementary data, which has all the goodies in it. So first, let's look up the study itself. We'll go straight to the results. Let me get my drawing tool out here real quick. So the study here says uh, this is the name, uh, this fancy thing here, the BNT162B2, a very exciting name. They say continued through this six-month follow-up period to be safe and well-tolerated. Few participants had adverse events uh, leading to study withdrawal. So that's an interesting distinction they put in there. VE is sort of the vaccine effectiveness. It's a, it's a way that they've, they're measuring this whole thing. Um, Fundamentally, it's a relative risk reduction rather than an absolute risk reduction. Show you what that means in just a minute. The VE against COVID-19 was 91% with a confidence interval of somewhere between mm, 89 and 93% uh, through up to six months of follow-up. So that sounds pretty good. They're saying this thing is 91% effective, less than the 95% effective that was first billed. But hey, you know, we're quibbling now. This is all uh, a really good study result here as they report it. Among evaluable participants and irrespective of previous SARS-CoV-2 infection. So this is interesting. It didn't matter if you had a previous SARS-CoV infection or not, uh, but they don't present, interestingly, the follow-up data or any supplementary tables to allow us to look at the number of people who came in naive, meaning they had no SARS-CoV-2 infection or history thereof and those who came in with a history of SARS-CoV infection, because those are two very interesting groups I would have wanted to see tracked, the vaccine given to each group, those who had not had COVID, those who had had COVID, and then see if there was any difference um, in efficacy or anything like that. That would have been awesome. Didn't see the data in here. Maybe I missed it, but I read this whole report twice, so um, didn't notice it. At any rate, uh, they see here, um, this was seen across countries and in populations with diverse characteristics characteristics of age, sex, uh, race, ethnicity, and COVID-19 risk factors in participants without uh, evidence of previous SARS-CoV-2 infection. So whether you had it or didn't have it, irrespective of the country, your age, sex, all that, they said, hey, this stuff seems to work pretty good. So that's all good news for the vaccine. Um, And the VE, the vaccine effectiveness against severe disease, was 97%. And in South Africa, where they had um, this other variant of concern, the B1351 uh, was predominant, they noted 100% uh, VE was observed. So, what's the conclusion? Well, with up to six months of follow up, and despite a gradually declining trend in vaccine efficacy, the vaccine had a favorable safety profile, was highly efficacious in preventing COVID 19. So, if all you read is the results and the conclusion, which is the top two paragraphs in this particular article, well, this all looks uh, like really good news. Let's go to the data now. I like the data. Oh, here we're going to start with um, reported cause of death. So this is the first thing I wanted to turn to. This is in the supplementary tables that follow with this. So if you follow that original link, there's a link also to get you to the supplementary tables. I'll also provide the links here. Whether they had nine uh, in total finishing out this, the total study, 21,926 people getting the vaccine, And out of those, 15 people died during the study period. And the placebo, which was 21,921, 14 people died. So no difference at all in death between the two groups. And so that either means that both groups were completely protected from death in the first place, or the incidence of death is so low in a sample size of 21 and 21,000, or collective 44,000, we'll call it, rounding up, um, The incidence of death is so low that 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 we couldn't detect a difference as to whether in six months of being vaccinated, the vaccine has provided any protection against death. But I think there's some interesting data that comes out of this when we go down below into the table here. So this is a table the reporting all causes of death, Uh, and so what's interesting right here in the red bracket. Let's just start here. COVID nineteen. It was reported that two people died of COVID nineteen in the placebo group, whereas one had died of COVID-19 pneumonia over here on the vaccine side. So two to one placebo to vaccine. There's really a lot of ways we could look at that. We could say the vaccine was therefore 50% effective at preventing death. um, But it's really not uh, a useful statistic because one and two, those numbers aren't large enough to give us any meaningful statistical um, understanding. And secondarily, I read through these things extensively. I was trying to find out what is a COVID-19 death as compared to a COVID-19 pneumonia. How is that determination made that COVID was the cause of death? And there was no information provided thereon. So I'm not clear. I'm sure the data exists somewhere, but I didn't have it at my fingertips when I went through these. So I just found that a little odd uh, that we we had that uh, going on. Now, as well, though, I want you to notice here in the blue or purple, depending on how your monitor is displaying it, we had two deaths. We had four deaths and one in one. All of these are causes of death that are round, heart, heart disease, things like that, um, arteriosclerosis, cardiac arrest, cardiac failure or congestive heart failure, as well as um, just plain old cardiac arrest. So we had four, five, six, seven, eight uh, showing up there and only two showing up here on the placebo side. So again, one of the things that's been showing up is the cardiomyopathy, especially in the younger people. That's been a noted side effect, if we can call it that, of this vaccine. So it's just interesting. There's a pretty big difference between the sort of heart incidents that showed up on one side of this table than the other. Hey, again, maybe the numbers aren't large enough to be statistically relevant, but there was no discussion of this beyond what I already told you, which is in the results. They said, you know, it was safe and well-tolerated. Few participants had adverse events leading to study withdrawal um i guess this would count as study withdrawal as well this table confused me a bunch because one of the l- listed causes of death over here on the placebo side was death um i wasn't i as you know my, my my phds in pathology we never studied death as a cause of death before uh, i think somebody should look into that i anyway i'm not clear what that is they should have said unknown and they did say that um you know they didn't you know down here they said missing. There's a cause of death, which is missing. I think that should have been a two. I don't think they should have listed death as a cause of death. I don't know what that means. Maybe they meant old age. I I don't know what that means. Also of interest, um, they had one dementia death here. Uh, They had one overdose death down in green here. Again, uh, that obviously doesn't seem to have anything to do with the trials. Um, but a lot of, uh, sepsis and sepsis shock, you know, showing up down over here. Um, and then they had an unevaluable event, which again is probably missing. So I think, I think death missing and unevaluable event, all sort of collapse into, into one thing called unknown. Like we don't know. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's what stood out for me was actually these things in blue up here, um, because it seemed like a potentially that was a much larger signal, but maybe not. Um, so to understand really what was going on there, I think you have to understand what were the risk factors of the people involved under this. And that was reported. And so what they had was they, they looked at the Charlson comorbidity index category. Here's all the comorbidities of people who were signing up for these particular programs. Now, what would you want? If you are designing a study where you're, you're looking for a vaccine that you want to use globally across the population, you would want to pull a sample of study participants who are as representative of that population as possible. So if you were going to be giving this to people of you know f- over the age of 12, you want definitely some 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds in there. If you're going to give it to pregnant women, you want pregnant women in there. If you want to give it to people with various clusters of comorbidities, say diabetes with complication plus heart disease, you'd want some of those in there to represent the overall sample of the population. Then you could come forward and say, this is what we think the safety profile of this vaccine or drug or anything you're studying is going to be because we've tested it against a representative and fair population that represents the larger population. That, that's always what you're looking to do. So as we look down here, a couple of things jumped out at me. Um, the first one is that this idea of diabetes with chronic complication, which we know now is actually a really se- one of the more serious comorbidities, this was only clocking in at um, 0.05% here and 0.06% here. That's not representative of the population at all. So, so again, reminder: the CDC recently came out with the idea that these were the 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 comorbidities you really had to worry about the most. Obesity was one of the biggies. Um, These anxiety and fear-related disorders, we covered this in the episode on COVID-related deaths that the CDC had um, just gone through. Now, admittedly, this study by the CDC comes out after the Pfizer study on the vaccine was designed. So they didn't have access to to this understanding of this table. So this is what they designed it around. These were the comorbidities. Whoops. These were the comorbidities that they were looking at. Um, where you see down here, you know, any malignancy, uh, cerebrovascular disease, chronic pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure, dementia, all those things that you can just read down there. I don't have to read them to you, but so this is what they, they did put into their study design. Again, this is roughly the Charlson uh, comorbidity index. Uh, These are the categories. Last I heard, there were 17, but they have more than 17 on here. So anyway, it's probably been updated since I last looked at something like this. But these, we know, are are actually really important comorbidities. And um, so as we look down this list, I think they should have included this level of understanding in this summary, because even if they didn't design the study around these comorbidities, they know about them now. And certainly we know about things like obesity. It's the number one risk factor. We've known that for a long, long time, actually. We didn't need the CDC data to come out and give us this table. So I think they should have at least discussed that in this paper. They didn't, as far as I could find. Maybe they did, and I missed it. But before we go into that table again of comorbidities, let's just get some grounding here. So this was posted on April 2nd, 2020. 2020. And this is population based estimates of comorbidities affecting the risk for complications for COVID 19 in the US. What they did here is they used a 2017 Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, the BRFSS, uh, 444,000 plus uh, numbers of patients in this. And they said to estimate the proportion of the US adults who report comorbidities that suggest heightened risk of complications from COVID. The comorbidities included cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, diabetes, asthma, hypertension, and or cancer, and uh, other than skin-based cancer. Now, this is based on data from China. Remember, this is April 2020. We hardly know anything. China's got the earliest data. They said, here's some complicating uh, comorbidities. And so they assessed this way back in April and said, oh, we think these might be the biggies. What I wanted to point out to you, though, is this next part in brighter yellow here, which says, overall... 45.4 percent of adults reported any of these six comorbidities any of them they could have one or more now if you included all of the other comorbidities besides these six what would you expect would that number 45 percent go up or down that's right it goes up because we're giving more chances for people to have one or more of these conditions but just for these six it was 45.4 percent that's the representative sample size for the united states Hey, editorially, uh, not that healthy of a population. If Anthony Fauci at all really wanted to help public health, they would be out there talking about how can we reduce the incidence of this level of chronic illness that's going on in the United States uh, and other parts of the world. But for the United States, uh, that would be something that could be done, probably should be done. So let's turn back to this table and note that up here, what percent of people had any of these co- comorbidities, and it was just twenty-one percent. So I'm going to ask uh, the comorbidities. This is odd. In other words, was the deck stacked? In other words, were really were overly healthy people put into this study, which would have a couple of effects. One, it would tend to underreport the level of death and serious COVID that would would result, because we know serious COVID and death happen to happen more to older people and people with more comorbidities. In fact most of the deaths occurred with people in the CDC study who had six or more comorbidities, six or more. So here, obviously, we've already got a statistical underrepresentation of people who actually have the amount of illness or the prevalence or incidence of comorbidity out in the general U.S. population. And as well, what's missing off this table? Obesity. I couldn't find it. It's not on this table of comorbidities, Uh, and it may not be part of the Charlson Comorbidity Index, but it definitely needed to be called out as a separate special category because it's one of the highest risk factors, and we've known that for a really long time. Before this study was designed, we knew about the effect of obesity. So that they chose a comorbidity index that doesn't have obesity specifically called out, you decide why that happened right? Uh, anxiety disorders, not on here. Uh, Aplastic anemia, biggie. This is a blood-borne disease many, not on here. Thyroid disorder, not on here. So we see those comorbidities up here as some of the most important to COVID and COVID outcomes, but we don't see them on this list specifically. Now, they may be wrapped in a couple of these other categories. I'm not really clear, and I was generous, but by putting COPD into chronic pulmonary disease, it's probably in there. Um or might be over here under congestive heart failure, I'm not clear where they tucked that one. But at any rate, um, the other thing I would notice is that, just in one example, the diabetes with complication is a shocking 6 to 7% of the general population, and here it's represented as 05 and 0.6%. The only way you can have that is if these people were excluded up front. Um, and they do mention about how people were excluded or included in this, and, and they they said generally certain people were excluded if they were if they had um, certain conditions. But again, this study doesn't tell us exactly how that was done. Um, so, what happens when you take people who are abnormally healthy compared to the rest of the gen pop and compare a vaccine that's supposed to go into the gen pop? You get pretty favorable results, probably in terms of. Um, the outcomes and so i'm going to tell you that i think this data undersells or underscores under underrepresents the actual amount of impact that we would see either in the vaccinated or unvaccinated groups we should have done this on a on a more representative sample would be a critique i would have had and i still have all right so actually i think it was kind of a shoddy study It's cheap I think they cheapened out. And here's why I was reading about I was interested in the definitions of confirmed and severe COVID-19 cases. So what they did is they said, hey, some people had COVID or had severe COVID. So I'm like, well, what's your definition? How, what, how did you define that? So first, the definition of SARS-CoV-2 related cases was the presence of more than one of the following symptoms and important and there, not an or SARS-CoV-2 positivity. Um, so that's uh, the uh, the RNA test. So you had to have one or more of the following symptoms and you had a positive case. But the and here is important because I think it's important that you they tested. But the and is also important because they said you had to have had one or more of the following symptoms and then you would get this test, and the, the RNA test. And that was during or within four days before or after the symptomatic period. By the way, They didn't mention what the cycle thresholds were of this test. They didn't mention any of that. Again, obviously relevant. I think the cycle threshold ought to be cut off at 28. Anything below that, we would say that's a positive. Anything above that, we would go, "Eh, maybe not, um, for reasons we've covered endlessly here. So, uh, hey, what would you have had to add? Fever, uh, new or increased cough, new or increased shortness of breath, chills, new or increased muscle pain, loss of taste or or smell, uh, sore throat, diarrhea, and or vomiting. Now, here's why this matters. They are saying they only really tested people if they had one or more of those symptoms. And we now know, and they should have also had this as a suspicion going in, that some people who are vaccinated, they're not presenting any of these symptoms, but they could still be presenting a positive PCR test, which is what we're finding out today. Because guess what? One of the things you want to know about your vaccine, is it sterilizing or not? Do people who get the vaccine still get and replicate and transmit the virus or not? Now say, oh, Chris, we know that now, but maybe they didn't know that then. Of course, they knew that then. This is what you do as a a virologist. You're of course interested in several measures. Did you know what's the level of death that comes out of this? What's the level of illness that comes out of this? What's the level of transmission that comes out of this? And all of that because those are all variables, all factors you care about. So when this was being sold, and I'm using that word carefully to the Gen Pop, we were told that this is how we end the pandemic. We all get the vaccine, but you don't end the the pandemic with a vaccine that still allows replication and transmission of the virus. So we should have been testing, and I'd say a a shoddy study, cheap. What I would have wanted to see was all 22,000 people, roughly, in each category, vaccinated, placebo, getting tested and tested routinely, maybe weekly, for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Then you could have had a decent outcome from this to say, Um, what the real results were in terms of who was still showing up as SARS-CoV-2 positive. If the test was only given to those who both, you know, had one or more of these symptoms, and then we ran the test, and now we're calling those people um, COVID positive, you're missing all the people who are asymptomatic. And by the way, there could have been asymptomatic people out in the placebo group too. In fact, we would expect it. In fact, wouldn't it be great to know how many asymptomatic people there were in both of those groups? And then on top of that, how many got sick out of both of those groups? And then out of that, how many people progressed to death? That would have been the data set I wanted to see. And I was really hoping that this six-month study would give me that data, but I didn't see that. Uh, Carrying on, confirmed severe COVID required confirmation of COVID-19, as we just talked about, and the presence of one or more of the following um, clinical signs at rest indicative indicative of severe systemic illness. So that's a respiratory rate of over thirty breaths per minute. We had a heart rate here of over one hundred and twenty five beats per minute. Uh, partial oxygen of ninety three percent on room air at sea level, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking for all of these sorts of things here um, to confirm severe COVID. So let's go to the data. So that's how they that's how they define this stuff. What we find here, first off, is uh, this is the table. This is the only table they presented, um, which didn't give me the information I was looking for. I'm like squinting at this, like, where it is? So here we come up with the VE over here of 91.3%, and that's represented because 850 people in the placebo got COVID. And only 77 people on the vaccine side got COVID. So when you factor those two things out, the um, relative risk reduction is... 91.3 percent. So that's the relative risk reduction. And then they measured, are these people at risk? And they said, well, this is because certain people were at risk because they had X number of these comorbidities. But they didn't filter this back against what we know to be the worst comorbidities. So I don't know how at risk, who's at risk, how they defined at risk is still a big open question mark in my mind. Might have been done absolutely right. It might not fall in line with the CDC data where we know some comorbidities are more at risk and some actually aren't at risk. Um, so at any rate, uh interesting data anyway, uh, about half and half in both groups ended up both at risk and not at risk. Um, how Again, how they defined risk, don't know. You know, was it age plus comorbidities? Was it just comorbidities? I don't know. I wish we had the age breakout on this, um, p- plus the actual comorbidity subgroups that were involved. Anyway, we don't have that. We sort of have this this overall glom. So that's what they said. 91.3% effective. And you we read that out and we saw that in the overall uh results in summary. Sounded pretty good, right? Um but what about vaccinated people without any symptoms? Um, well, they weren't tested, as far as I know. and what about viral loads? That'd be awesome. What was the cycle thresholds? Uh nope, not reported. So I there's none of that data. So I can't tell you what the kind of information we would need to know to actually make any sort of true assessment off of this so if i'm a clinician and i want to know you know somebody asked me uh you know what's what's the what's the risk reduction you know how much less likely am i to be sick all i can tell you is that the study says 91.3 uh, percent protective but i can't tell you what actually happens after that i don't know how many of these people got long covid i don't know how bad these cases were i don't really know anything. Um, beyond what I can report to you here. Um, As well, uh, the relative risk reduction again looks really great here. So look at severe COVID. So here's severe COVID as we defined it before. Only one person got severe COVID out of all 23,040 people that uh, made it through this portion of the uh, vaccine testing compared to out of 23,037 people, 30 people got um, severe COVID. That's a 96.7% risk reduction, which on a relative basis, which is awesome. That's really good. Again, I don't know the ages of these people. I don't know what comorbidities they had. You could say maybe it doesn't matter. Look, there's a 96.7% risk reduction. But as we know, your age really matters a lot. And also, this is the first time in my career where I'm aware of vaccines being presented as a relative risk reduction, because that's relative, one relative to 30 But what's the absolute risk reduction, which is actually what is always reported across uh, vaccines, at least as far as I'm aware through time. And you want to know that absolute number. And here's how the absolute risk reduction breaks down. So your chance of getting serious COVID is all we have to do to understand it is take this 30 here and we divide it by um, the number of people who are in this placebo group. Uh, I wrote down a different number here because I was, oh, I'm sorry, I pulled these numbers from the actual text But on this table, they're saying 23,037. So this should be 23,037. It doesn't actually change the number at all. So you would have had, if you were in the placebo group, you got a shot of saline. Your chance of getting severe COVID during this six-month study period was 0.134%. 0.134%. And if you were on the vaccine, you only had a one out of this number. But again, that should have been 23,040 won't change the percentage. You only had a 0.004% chance. So on a relative basis, 0.004 is way better. It's less than 0.134. But still on an absolute basis, if you said across the entire population they studied, again, I don't know what really the age breakdowns were um, because I can't find that data in here. Uh, We find, and again, these might be healthier than normal people. So these numbers might not be representative of what's actually happening in the population And I don't think any of this really includes the Delta variant. So this was all done prior to the Delta variant. So all of those things, this is just sort of placeholder numbers, but we're just, we're looking at the study design. This is the only data we've got to really work from. So we're working from it. At any rate, the absolute risk reduction is actually the difference between these two numbers. And it's between you had a 99.996% chance of not going to severe COVID if you had the vaccine and you had a 99.866% chance of not going to severe COVID if you had placebo. But what would, what do we not know? There's a word that did not appear anywhere in this document or the supplementary tables, which is the word hospital or hospitalization. Neither of those two words. So I don't know what they, by serious, how many of these people went to the hospital, how long were they there, how serious was serious. Remember, it was just, you had a SARS-CoV-2 test plus one or more of the following things, which could have included, here's serious COVID, my heart rate's over 125 beats per minute, or I have a resting respiration rate of over 30 per minute, or they had a variety of things, right? So if you had one or more of those, um, or was that more than one? I think you had to have two. I think that was one or greater, not greater than or equal to. I'd have to go back and look. How did they define that serious COVID? That was more than than or equal to one. So you could have had one. I could have had a resting heart rate of 125 beats per minute or i could have had a respiratory rate of over 30 beats per minute or any one of these other things down here um significant acute renal hepatic or neurological dysfunction intensive care unit admission and or death any one of those things would have been confirmed severe for me um, if i was uh, in their study and presenting a severe but i can't tell you how many of these people out of these 30 actually went to the hospital i don't know um i'd like to know i think that would be awesome data so uh And turning now to the last big piece of data they had, which was adverse events, because this is, of course, really important. What do you want to know? What do you want to know when you're evaluating for yourself uh, the actual risks? What what are the actual risks here? So your personal situation and mine are going to be very different because we have different age, we have different health histories, we have different morbidities or comorbidities. All of that's actually going to factor in, right? And so what you want to know is you want to know Without any vaccine in me, what is my chance of dying from COVID? And what's my chance of long-haul COVID? We would like to know those two things together. Together, that's my risk from COVID. And I want to measure that against what's my risk of dying from the vaccine or getting a serious adverse event from the vaccine and or still getting long-haul COVID or some syndrome like that from even though I have the vaccine in me. And then I can compare those two. If they're about equal, tough, tough call. If this number is way bigger than this number, that's an easy call. If they're reversed, now that's a different call. That's an easy call too, but I'm not going to get the vaccine. So we want to be able to measure those two things against each other. makes sense, right? So the adverse events here, they're noting uh, any adverse event out of a pool of 21,926 here, 30% of people had any of sort of an event at all, as only compared to 14% on placebo. So 30% Compared to one out of three, compared to fourteen percent, which is what one out of seven. So uh, that's yeah, that's that's sort of the the breakdown here. And and, uh, out of any of those events, they said, um, well, fifty-two hundred of those were related to the shot. Two hundred and sixty-two of those were severe. Twenty-one were life-threatening. But comparing that, twenty-six people had a life-threatening. sort of event any event during in the placebo side so we can say oh you know out of 20 some odd thousand people x number of people are going to have a serious event they're going to have heart attacks strokes something's going to happen during that study period when you have that many people involved so the first thing we might say is there's no real difference here in in life-threatening events so that would be some pretty good information but ultimately the severe this is 1.2 percent of everybody who gets the shot compared to 0.7% in what we would call our control or a placebo or our gen pop. Because I don't think a 30.3 30, um, 30, uh, mic- millil- milliliters, 300 microliters of, of saline caused your severe event. So we can say 0.7% is sort of the background baseline rate we would expect. But above that, we had a full half a percent of people above that number getting the shot who had a severe event. So now we have a number. Remember, I said we want to compare COVID to, to the vaccine. 0.5% of people on this study compared to baseline had a severe life-threatening, um, sorry, a severe event that I guess isn't life-threatening, but was severe. So we don't know what they meant by severe. Again, it was uh, very poorly defined. I wanted a lot more data. I wanted to understand what they, what they really meant. Um, but for the most part, out of the thousands and thousands of adverse events, for the most part. It was a sore shoulder. It was uh, fevers, chills, things like that. But we've heard about some really debilitating adverse events that people have had. So I would have been actually interested in the breakdown on that. And by the way, you might say, well, you know, because that's kind of hard stuff. That's a lot of data to track. You know, how would we do that? Well, we could do it like the people in Europe do it. So we're going to tour now a public database. You can go to it. You can click through it. By the way, the US, if you go to the uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system, vares, really hard to drive. You have to kind of almost become an expert. There's a lot of funky little drop-down menus. Um, but this uh, is the, Olivia, go full frame for me for a second, would you? Um, this here, and I don't know if you can see it, so let me drag it up, um, just make sure that this didn't fall out. This is a public database, you can go to it. Um, these are just the analytics here. This is from the European um, adverse event reporting system and monitoring system. So here's the number of individual cases in the Eurovigilance system for this stuff. Tozinamaran. Tozinamaran is actually the the generic um, trade name for the Pfizer shot. So they have all COVID shots. That includes the Moderna, the AstraZeneca, all that but I just went to the individual tables that exist for Tosin Amaran or for the Pfizer shot. And so far to date, they're reporting 327,665 adverse events. They break it down by age. And look at their age ranges here. Um, these are useful age ranges we can begin to make some, some sense out of a little bit. Um, this is still a little broad for me, 18 to 64, a little, little broad. But you can see here where the uh, adverse events are actually clustering. Um, We had 20,000 that weren't specified, but for the most part, we know that this shot's being given more to to people who are um, older. And so what's interesting, I don't, you know, we'd have to compare this against the actual population, but um, we're seeing this sort of behavior. A lot of people in the 18 to 64 age range are reporting some sort of a serious or adverse event. Uh, We'll get to the seriousness in just a second, but here's what really jumped out at me. Females to males big, big difference. Uh, Let's just say the majority of the individual cases of reporting some sort of an adverse event are actually females compared to males. This is really critical data, uh, and I think people should be aware of it. And again, this is public data. It's in the adverse event reporting system for Europe. Now we can come back, uh, Livio. And um, so here, here I just went to a different table, so I'm asking, now look look at the data we get here. Two things. They're showing us how many were serious in the darker purple, not serious. Uh, there's a tiny little gray bar of not specified. And now we get to do this by, oh, blood and lymphatic system disorders. Cool. Cardiac disorders. Cool. What's the biggest one? General disorders and administration site conditions. What's interesting is reported as severe. Tens of thousands. This is probably I'm going to have to guess uh, 60 to 70 thousand. Probably in the probably right around 60 thousand reported general disorders um, and administration site can so some, something just sort of generalized. And as well, what's showing up really big time down here? Nervous system disorders. That's a really big deal because you've probably seen there are all these videos that go out. They often get taken down, but there are people, often women, who are reporting neurological issues where they're shaking, they can't control their movements. Um, and, uh, many of them have been uh, nurses and other healthcare workers because they were among the first. Anyway, if you just go out and search and I, sometimes you kind of go on, got to go on some of, uh, B I T C H U T E. You got to go on that one. Um, and, uh, et cetera to see them, but they're out there. So it's interesting. There's a lot of these showing up. And by the way, you know, these are just what's been reported. But this is a lot. This is a lot of reports in the system right now. And so this would have been the sort of breakdown I would have wanted to see off of this, um, this study. Because six months is a long time to be able to study something. This is a really inadequate table. <laughs> it's like, um, look, they were any event. Some were related. Some weren't. Some were severe. And that's all we can tell you. That's not data. This is data. Now we can start to look at this. And by the way, if you um, happen to show up at your doctor in Europe, and you say, uh, "Hey, listen, you know, I've got this nervous system thing," um, you know, it's showing up, and they would be able to go into their system. They'd go, "Oh, yeah, this is pretty commonly reported. We can start with that as a baseline." You don't have to. You don't have to convince them that maybe uh, this had something to do with the vaccine. What's cool though is it's good to see is that the pregnancy. Um, Uh, and uh, perinatal conditions, really almost nothing is being reported, and that's a very good sign here because there were some concerns about that. Um, But what does show up a lot are the psychiatric, the nervous system, um, anxiety, uh, general things like that. That's showing up quite a bit um, on this, and so that's an interesting thing to see. So at any rate, the big buckets on here, I would say, is... um, Sort of the vascular issues and cardiac issues. You see those here, vascular down here, um, and the cardiac disorders up here. I think those map out reasonably well with what we saw on that first table up here. Um, this, these two begin to match each other a little bit. So I'm a little disappointed that that they that the study design they didn't really dig into these much except to say these were all determined to be not related. To the vaccine, anything that showed up on that column. And of course, 15 to 14, hey, you can make a pretty strong case that um, there is no statistical significance that you would argue that if there was some more serious adverse events, they should have shown up in this column as a number larger than 15 that's distinctly larger than that number of 14 on the other side. So with that aside, this is what data looks like. I was waiting to find something like this. I was kind of hoping because, you know, we want to start to understand really what's happening. So we don't know that. Uh, but on the European side, This is what they're up to in terms of their overall reporting right now as of July 31st. They're saying this is how many have been reported into the system. Again, that's what got reported in. Some of these will be looked at, scrubbed out of the system. They don't belong there, but it's a pretty big number. Not all of them are going to get scrubbed out and closing in on 2 million injuries of which I would have to guess... 30% Thirty percent ish are showing up as um, serious, and uh, you know it's just sort of eyeballing that. I don't actually have the overall number. I'm, I'm sure they have it in here. By the way, they had table after table after table after table, uh, so I just must have missed it. Um, in terms of of going through it, so I'm sure the data is in there. This is what data presentation should look like: charts, graphs, things broken out in even easy age groups that you can drill down into and find more and more out. So kudos. Uh, to the European system for setting it up like this, um, this actually is a, a a much handier thing. Look at all these these uh, tabs up here. You could have looked at the number of individual cases received over time, so you could put a, a temporal aspect on it, number of individual cases by the different countries involved, by the reaction groups, on and on and on. Lots of great ways to break this data down, so it's a, a great place to come through. Um, and by the way, I have to put a hat tip out to uh, Bill M., who just sent me that data um, by email this morning. Uh, so I was able to include it today. So thank you, Bill M for that. That's awesome. Um, so at any rate, um, the other thing that was a little disappointing to see was, uh, and oh, by the way, um, I'm sure you, many of you've heard about this. It's a case of Maddie De Uh, Maddie is a 12 year old. Um, and she was, uh, her got volunteered into by her mother into the fire vaccine trial when she was 12. And on January 20th, Maddie received her second dose of the Pfizer COVID vaccine as a participant in the clinical trial for 12 to 15 year olds. Now she's in a wheelchair. Her mom asks, why is she not back to normal? She was totally fine before this. And Stephanie is her mother. Uh, She volunteered for the Pfizer vaccine trial to help everyone else. And they're not helping her. Uh, Before Maddie got her final dose of the vaccine, she was healthy, got straight A's, had lots of friends, had a life. Upon receiving the second shot, Maddie immediately felt pain at the injection site and over the next 24 hours developed severe abdominal and chest pain. Her mom said at this press conference, Maddie told her mother it felt like her heart was being ripped out through her neck and she had painful electrical shocks down her neck and spine that forced her to walk hunched over. Um, So that's from this article here. And then there's another one from this article here continues, quote, "Um, let me see. I said, oh, yeah. Uh, Stephanie DeGuerre told uh, Tucker Carlson tonight on Thursday that after contacting several doctors, they claimed her daughter, Maddie, could not have fallen seriously ill from the vaccine. Uh, Like, how did they? I mean, if you're this mother, I mean, this is your kid. 24 hours after the second shot of this experimental thing, Mm. they crash and they say, oh, no, it didn't have anything didn't have anything to do with the vaccine. The next question is, well, there were only 1,037 kids in that trial. How many kids out of 1,037 during an average um, two-month period suddenly crash and end up in a wheelchair with these sets of symptoms? If it's more than zero, got a case to be made. But this doesn't happen that often. Like like I'm not aware of this happening, that that 12-year-olds just suddenly uh, crash and burn like this. The only diagnosis we got for her is, that it's a conversion disorder or a functional disorder of neurological symptoms, and they attribute that to anxiety. Okay, quick reminder that one of the things that we talked about in the overall comorbidities that shows up was this idea of anxiety and fear-related disorder shows up as number two. Something about COVID and or the spike protein can trigger it's either either people have the anxiety and fear-related disorders, and that's the comorbidity, or as we discussed, maybe the COVID causes that anxiety or fear disorder to show up. Um, and so, but that it shows up here is interesting. And the second thing we should note is uh, in this finer detail, and maybe those doctors who thought Maddie's case had nothing to do with the vaccine should go to the European medical, um, uh, sorry, the, the E, not the Medi- I don't think the EMA runs this. Anyway, it's the EU uh, uh, vigilance system and go here and note how many nervous system disorders this big one here are actually showing up as a consequence of the vaccine. And maybe they would be a little less quick to just up and declare that, um, you know, uh, that this uh, sh- couldn't have couldn't have must have been it wasn't due to the vaccine. It's just it's a, a functional disorder of neurological symptoms. Uh, which, is, again, is one of the side effects that's well noted in the European data. Uh, her mother noted, ironically, she had no anxiety before the vaccine. So now we're starting to develop a case that says that generalized anxiety disorder, when you start to see that, that is actually a bad sign. It means that something else is happening that that's causing either with COVID or maybe now with a vaccine. If you see that, that means that there's something going on uh, that's really not good. And... Um, and so that I, I'm, I am very loath to say right off the bat, without a lot of study, that uh, Maddie's case clearly had nothing to do with the vaccine. I don't know how you could make that determination. Um, you could make that based on something other than science. But based on the science we have, we would say, you know what? After the shot, you might expect people to have these sorts of things in this sort of frequency right here. Um, and so, by the way, nervous system disorders do show up as one of the big, big uh, pieces that are on here. In fact, in terms of serious adverse events, it's, one of the, it's the second highest, second only to the general uh, sight condition uh, disorders. So it's, it's actually really prevalent. It's not, like, it's not like a little tiny one like, like this renal um, that thing down here for kidneys. This is the second highest disorder that's being showing up in, in the symptoms set. So um, I think that's what's going on here, but don't know yet. At any rate, uh, now we know, as well, I was a little disappointed they didn't test the viral loads in the Pfizer in the six-month data. We now know that the viral loads are kind of the same in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. There was this study that had come out very recently. Um, this is still in preprints in this uh, MedRXIV uh, link down here. So that's a preprint server. It says here, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals have similar viral loads in communities with a high prevalence of the Delta variant. So let's look at that real quick. Not a huge num- set of numbers, but they did sequence all of these. Um, this comes out of Wisconsin. So 11 Wisconsin uh, counties. We can see the different dates here. Uh, but let's go to the summary. Um, 212 people who are unvaccinated showed up with a Delta variant. Uh, 79 in the fully vaccinated. And so they're seeing um, 27% overall uh, as of these dates right here. And by the way, the Delta variant wasn't super prevalent way back here, um, in this earlier part of, of things. So what do we know? We know first that people who are fully vaccinated are still showing up as cases. And again, that just means that they've tested positive. It's not a true case, but now we actually have data. So they, they went deeper into this and they actually sequenced and then they gave us data. Thank you. Thank you to the people who did this study. Um, so, uh, Ramirez May here and Grand, uh, quoting the first and the second authors. Awesome. This is what we want to see here that we're looking at the CT values of people who have been either not fully vaccinated or fully vaccinated. And we're looking here at the CT values with 30 sort of being the presumptive cutoff. Anything above this line, probably not too infective to themselves or others or in any bad shape. But look at the number of people down here with a CT below 20 and it's identical. It's identical whether or not you were fully vaccinated or not. And as well, when they come over here, and um, and now we're looking at uh, the, just here, just everybody below this uh, in this other study they did here. It's not many, not many, N of 9, N of 5. But again, look at these CT values here. Anybody, anybody below 20, you've, you're loaded. Um, if you're down here near 15, like this one person was way over here, you are, you're probably shedding like crazy. That is a really high load right there. Um, So at any rate, no difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And of course, that confirms what we just heard, which caused a little bit of a bombshell of report, which was uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal was the CDC was talking about their new mask guidelines and everything kind of changed a little bit. So whether or not you've had the Pfizer, the Moderna, the J&J, the whatever, but they did note here now that this COVID-19 outbreak on Cape Cod Um, helped the CDC. Uh, They wanted to start urging everybody to wear masks again. Uh, They said it's because it demonstrated that vaccinated people infected with a Delta variant might be as contagious as those who are unvaccinated. No might be about it. They had this data. They sat on it for a while. This data here says as infectious. There's no difference between these two groups. Same amount of viral load, just the same. That side to that side, same. Um, and so uh, they are just as infectious based on that. Um, and then the CDC said in a report on Friday that 127 vaccinated people infected with the Delta variant during the outbreak appeared to carry as much virus as 84 unvaccinated or partially vaccinated people who became infected. So 127 with fully vaccinated, 84 unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Kind of the same same loads going on there. Um, And this was a case that happened on Cape Cod out in Barnstable County. So the summary to sort of this, I have, you know, the six month, I'm really glad we finally got the six month data out of Pfizer. I've been waiting on it. It kind of left me with more questions than answers. And I think these are legit questions. First, what was the impact of obesity? Why was it excluded? Why was that left out of the study parameters? Why can't I find any mention of it in this entire document? Seems like a really important covariable. Even if they didn't specifically study for it, they should have, they they of course, they recorded the BMI on all these people. They had to have, uh, or they really failed at the study design. And, and so we should know that. They should have parsed it out. We should understand that because that would be relevant information, like who ended up sick and why. Again, they sort of presented as, you know, you have a this X percent chance of getting COVID if you're vaccinated versus not. But that's not quite true. We need to know what age you are and how sick you are. Those two variables or what comorbidities you have. Those matter. Uh, second, uh, why were the comorbidities so much less than the general population? Uh, I think that's uh, a legit question. It sh- they should have had uh, something that was representative of the st- of the general study of, of the general pop. Uh, next, uh, why were the age groups broken to uh, under sixty five and over sixty five? So this is really unhelpful to anybody. Uh, seeking to understand the age-adjusted risk. Let's imagine you're a practitioner, you're a doctor, you've finally been waiting, you want some safety data, you've got people who are asking you safety questions. They say, should I get the shot, doc? Doc says, you're 82 years old, you have a comorbidity. Let me go look. And there ought to be a table in there which explains the risk-benefit ratio given not just a comorbidity, but that one plus that age. That ought to be a lookup table that we can go to. Right now, you can't answer that, not from this paper. Maybe the data exists somewhere else. Um, I hope it does. But for now, it just says over 65, under 65, and then gives you a big bucket, um, which doesn't help. I want to know, why weren't the hospitalizations reported? Really critical information. Uh, I'd like to know that. It helps me assess things. Why weren't those with a priori COVID infection tracked separately? We should have known, you know, if you had had that that COVID infection and you got the shot, how do those people fare compared to people who were not priorly exposed to uh, COVID that would be good information to have. What was the impact on long COVID? That's really a, a prime concern, I think, to more people, even than the death statistics, if those aren't compelling. What do you got? What do you, what, what's the long COVID? This is a, a really big impact for people. And so we would want to know um, both the impact of that and and particularly, did any of the people with the vaccine, because now we know that they're actually replicating virus in them, did they any of those experience any of uh, long-lasting adverse events because of the vaccine itself or Long COVID, I would love to be able to answer that question from this data. We should be able to answer that question. That we can't answer that question right now is, is really shows a defect in the study design. And, and I don't have a good explanation. I mean, if it was that important and everybody has to take it and you can't go out to eat at bars unless you've had it, we should have this data, right? It's just part of it. And that would be really compelling data for me. I would want to know. I really, I fear long COVID more than I fear COVID death. And I would want to know now, what are my chances of getting long COVID without the vaccine and with the vaccine? I want to know that. That would be really important data for me to have. And then why weren't the adverse event data presented based on the type of adverse event and eventual outcome resolution uh, data that we see for serious cases for like in the EU, right? What, why, why didn't they present that AE data, adverse events, in terms of um, what, what actually happened? So we know that there were 260 plus serious adverse events. What were they? What what categories did they fall in? What what kind of at serious adverse events did these people still have those adverse events or did they pass? Um, we would like to know that. All they told us was, did anybody die from one of those serious adverse events or not? That's it. That was the dividing line. But I kind of want to know, you know, out of those 262 people who who had the serious adverse events, if they still have long term effects today, we'd want to measure that against people who get COVID and end up with long term effects. It's just data. Then we would know. We'd be able to make a decision. And why weren't all study participants tested for COVID infection versus just those with symptoms? That would have been awesome data study, people. Test everybody. Then we could know really what was happening. How many people were getting it, this, that, and the other. Like Then we get to know. It's just data. We would like to know that stuff. So those are the questions I have. I got a lot of questions still. I hope they get answered, that we deserve to get answers to these questions. I can't explain to you why this study with all the money poured into it with Pfizer reporting, I don't know, whatever it was, $33 billion in revenue for the second quarter. Well, you take one of those billions and toss it into, you know, take, take a fraction of one of those billions and toss it into answering some of these questions. That would be awesome. Um, and those are the kinds of questions that I think are fair to ask and we deserve answers to. And, and uh, it makes sense, right? Of course. So that's all I have for you today. Remember, if you like this video, share it, like it, click the like button, subscribe to this channel. We're doing really well on on channel subscriptions and feeling good about that because it means we're reaching more people and we're doing that because you're helping. You're giving us uh, that that lift by sharing this video um, and videos like it. So thank you for that. Thank you for your support. Remember, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do this differently. We can do this with data, with logic, with common sense. That's what we do at Peak Prosperity. By the way, I'm going to be going deeper into some of the data behind this and some other kind of weird conclusions and observations I have based on country-level data that I've seen around vaccines and things like that. Really cool stuff. However, I can't put it out here. I'm probably already towing the line by giving you Pfizer actual data, or lack thereof, out here in public. But uh, the rest is going to be found over at peakprosperity.com. Check it out. There'll be a link down below in the description here at YouTube, if this is where you're watching it, where you can find that particular uh, path to get you back over um, for the rest of this. So that's all I have for you today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Remember, hit like, hit share, do your part. Appreciate all your efforts to help. Bye.